Thank you. There's a lot more of you than there was when I went in there. Thank you for coming out. I appreciate it. Um, and I appreciate for the invite and um, of, of the opportunity to speak to you and hopefully uh, educate you a little bit on some of the a few things that have happened and the fact that there's an intersection uh, between all things and, and uh, Christ. A little bit about myself. Uh, um, uh, Lee made me put this slide in here. So, so I've been a citizen of the kingdom of Christ for 54 years and uh, I grew up in an entrepreneurial family. I've done some stuff in networking uh, that you've used and don't know you're using it, but uh, you do. So you've, you've actually used my stuff before. Uh, for those business school people here, uh, I've done the venture capital route and uh, really kind of been involved peripherally with it for two or three times. And uh, the last time, in a serious way, we raised about $100 million back in uh, the early uh, 20-teens. So I'm here with an interesting prospect. I've taught Sunday school um, uh, many times, and I've taught computer science courses and, and classes and did sales presentation on technical things. But this is the very first time I've ever been able to take those two things and, and put them together in one talk. And it's, it's, it, I really appreciate the invite uh, to here with the computer science department, the, the, the uh, hospitality I've been given by uh, Bob Jones and also by Sermon Audio. I really appreciate this. Uh, another little thing about us is we have a different business philosophy. Um, the current invocation of, uh, of the current uh, incarnation, I should say, of our company has a different business philosophy than many companies you see today. Our job isn't to make a lot of money for the investors. Uh, we have some investors, but uh, they're pretty patient people. That really the purpose of any company is to find somebody to help and to profitably employ people to help them. And uh, any of you people are gonna do business in the future. The talk is three godly men that changed computer history. And the first thing that came to my, my mind is uh, what natural science tells us about God and how he designs things. And our designs are always so much inferior, inferior to his, and that includes software and hardware, computer hardware. Uh, Johannes Kepler that figured out, hey, I don't think the sun revolves around us. Um, did calculations and he said he could see God's thoughts and think God's thoughts after him. Newton very much related to this as well. Um, and in studying natural science, what you do is you see that there's some attributes uh, to science that, that really reflect the creator that created them. And that's this concept of simplicity of getting something done and the clarity of, of how that happens. And also the generality. I mean, how general is the, uh, the uh, genetics code of every living, uh, be every living animal and plant, right? So these are all things you can see in nature, and we can see them in software. So the story I'm going to tell you tonight has to do with a group of three people. And these three people are unusually uh, uh, identified as believers. I've met a lot of believers in computers uh, 
And I met an awful lot of unbelievers in computers. It's sort of like any other profession or business you, you would go through and see. But I'm going to follow one story, one thread that really demonstrates this very much. And the, and the story is mainly through the story of this man through this period of time. This is Frederick Phillips Brooks, Jr., uh, son of a physician. He grew up in Greenville, uh, North Carolina. <laughs> And, uh, and grew up in, in, the, in the rural south. It was a very bright young man. Uh, it was educated uh, by almost his father. They switched schools a couple of times, but he really learned more from his father than anybody else. And he got an undergraduate degree at Duke, which is pretty hard to get into, and also went to Harvard. When he was a child, before, uh, before he even went to college, he read a Time magazine that talked about one of the machines at Harvard uh, that, was being, that was built by a man named Howard Aikens, pioneer. This was not a computer per se. This would have been in the 40s. Uh, it was more of a, of a calculating device that would automatically run a whole series of numbers. And a, imagine writing a very simple uh, program in a little loop to calculate and add to accumulate and print out. That's kind of what this thing did mechanically. It was electromechanical. It was done with relays. Um, and it just captured the imagination of young Fred Brooks. And, and that's really what God does with us. He captures our imagination. Things talk to us. And the more prayerful you are and the more con you connect devotionally to the cross, the more you can hear these things and the less you hear the things that are not drawing you to the, to the right thing. Anyway, you can see this very early in Fred's life, although at this point he's, he's not a believer. He is merely a good Methodist, as he said. Um, he got into Harvard because it, so he could work with Aikens. So he went to, went to Harvard to get his Ph.D., um, and he did a thesis on uh, should we make a piece of hardware to make payroll or should we write software to make payroll? And uh, his advisor was the great Howard Aikens. So he actually got his PhD from Aikens himself. Uh, got, it, got his PhD in pretty record time, partly because every day Aikens would show up at his office and want to see lines of, of, of prose. So uh, Brooks had to write something because he knew tomorrow Aikens would want to see what he had written. Uh, so he got out in pretty good time. Now, at the, this time would have been 1956. And in 56, IBM was the leader in computing because they had a head start. They started with punch cards in 1914. So all of most of information was being done in business were on cards about the size of the antique dollar bill from the 20s, which we don't have anymore. But it was barely had real dollar bills. Uh, and you punch holes in it, and you were able to do all your calculations and things with, with these cards. Um, a, a guy shows up at Harvard, because there was a lot of connections between Harvard and IBM, and a guy named Steve Dunwell. And Dunwell said, hey, why don't you guys come up to Poughkeepsie, New York, and help us build the world's fastest computer? Uh, while also at Harvard, he met his wife, Nancy. Uh, and so, as he says, he graduated, he, he graduated on Monday, he got married on Tuesday, after two-week vacation, he shows up in Poughkeepsie to help design, help design the IBM 7030, uh, also known as Stretch computer. 
Um, so I probably should give you a little bit of the idea of what computers were like uh, at the time. And this would have been 50, around 56. Um, and they, weren't quite, they weren't quite the small pocket things we have uh, today. Usually somebody says they were the size of a room and stuff like that. Well, I got more interesting information than just how big they were. Uh, I have more information. They were very hot, too. Um, the 701 was IBM's first computer, and they were about three years after the existence of the very first machine, which was in Cambridge. Um, the, 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 the had a 36-bit words of memory, uh, and we talk now about 8-bit bytes, and we have, you know, three bytes make a 32-bit word, and you can have eight bytes to make a 64-bit uh, word. Well, all the machines were only word addressed, and they were all 36 bits. And there were 36 bits because you could put about a 10-digit decimal number in, 30, in a 36-bit binary number. Um, there were no bytes. You couldn't address individual characters. There almost really wasn't a concept of a character. It was kind of an afterthought because these were machines to do calculations. They had one large accumulator in which you did the calculations in. You loaded things in the accumulator, you added things and multiplied the accumulator, and then you stored things. Um, and you programmed in octal digits, zero through seven. And you did it in absolute. You started in location zero, and then you put all the digits for every word in the machine. Uh, and that's how you actually programmed it. Uh, you kept a little board on the side to keep track of where in memory were your, um, uh, were your variables. Uh, and there, there were no other registers. So if you wanted to loop through an array, like for i equals zero, well, i is less than the size of array, i plus plus, you did it by modifying the instruction that was loading it. So you'd add one to that instruction, and that would load from the next lo memory location. Uh, try to debug that. They released this machine in 1952. Um, this is before Brooks showed up at IBM. And here's a picture of it. And you notice this pretty good bit of plumbing overhead to try to get the heat out of it. And uh, that's because, and I'll show you in a minute, uh, that's actually uh, uses vacuum tubes, the, the, or valves as the British say, that were very hot and very high voltage in their vacuum tubes. They also weren't terribly reliable. At the same time, they came up with a, a, a different machine with a different instruction set that worked totally different to do business applications. IBM sold punch card equipment. So the first thing they wanted to do is make computers that interface with punch cards. So they had a whole different set of machines for that. And these different types of machines kind of multiplied over time. Here's a picture of the 702 uh, with somebody using it. You had a lamp. Not an LED. LEDs hadn't been invented yet. Those were actually little 12-volt light bulbs, and you had one pretty much for every switch, flip-flop, switch in the machine. <clears throat> and the reason they were very hot is because the modules they were made out of were made out of vacuum tubes like this. This is a lot, one of the many logic modules you'd find in these machines. I mean, these things barely worked. Uh, the meantime between failure... Of, a, of one of these machines was about 20 minutes. The, um, they followed up very quickly. In 1955, they had a version of the 701 that actually had magnetic uh, core memory. 
And that was much more reliable memory, and the machine actually was engineered to be a little more reliable. Uh, they're figuring out tricks for doing that. They also added some additional registers, and a register is a special high-speed memory in the machine that lets you do things like uh, address memory locations and stuff uh, uh, to be very quickly, as, as a, in addition to having the accumulators. So the 704 was a pretty famous machine because if you've ever heard of the programming language Fortran, it was invented on this type of machine. Uh, it was written for it, and Fortran was designed in order to run um, programs written in Fortran as fast as they would be if they were written in octal by hand, right? Because that was used to. A friend of mine told me once that he got special credit in school if he could get his entire assignment on one card. So. But none of these, uh, some of these machines uh, Dr. Brooks had been exposed to as an intern. He had actually worked at North American Aviation in California working on the 701. Um, so he had already learned the programming. And he also got an uh, um, uh, internship with IBM itself and actually learned some of the stuff there. But what he came for is to uh, work on this machine. The, in 1955, the government came to IBM and said, we're trying to do all this nuclear research. We're also cracking codes and trying to predict weather. Would you design us a computer that's a lot faster than anything you've got? IBM said, well, we want to make computers out of transistors, so maybe we'll do that. Uh, we'll help you out. Boy, it's going to be expensive. And they quoted like $13 million in 1955, which is, comes out to be $70 million. Uh, today, and the result was uh, the, the IBM 7030 stretch. Um, some interesting things about it, uh, they pioneered their use of transistors with this machine instead of vacuum tubes. Huge Im improvement in, in reduction of size and also in reliability. Um, uh, and it was also, most of the chief engineer was a guy named Warner Bulkholz. And Burkholz came up with this idea of having each character be addressed individually and this idea of, of, of one of being where it could be one bit to eight bits. So you could have a six bit or a four bit or a seven bit. Um, and he, he's the one who coined the name byte. So the term B-Y-T-E for one of these things was coined by Warner Burkholz. Um, it was also the first machine to use to use cache, uh, high-speed local memory that would speed up the processes because they'd realize that there's a locality of reference in programs. If you hit an address or an area, you're probably going to be using that area a lot. And then as the program proceeds, it, it touches other areas. And by having a cache, you can keep those in a faster place than, than main memory. Um, it also used pipelining, invented by a, uh, another IBM, very sharp young IBM guy named John Cock, who later went on to invent reduced instruction set computing. It was a massive machine. It was 15 feet long, 5 feet high, and 5 feet wide. And that was the generic version. Um, and here's a picture of it right here. It was made out of a number of what called rollagons, and there's a, these are rows of handles. And, you, and this is a Rolagon pulled out, and you could see the wiring in the back uh, there. They sold 10 of these uh, for, for an average of $10 million apiece. Only the NSA, which ran one from, up into the 70s, 
um, they had a little extra thing added to it uh, called the harvest, and the harvest added another 20 feet. You just think of it as a plug-in card. Well, they designed and built these uh, with something called a new, with these new logic modules with transistors. And initially they had 44 types of these, and eventually they had more like 240 different types of these cards. Each of the round cans is a transistor, and connectors on the edge allowed you to plug them into a backplane. So you take a big backplane with multiple rows of these, where each one of these cards could do maybe a couple of flip-flops or a, a, a few AND operations. You plug them in here and wire them all together, and you made your whole computer out of them. So you'd have racks of these inside that, on each of those rollagons. While working on this machine, uh, Brooks, still a good Methodist, as he says, meant he attended Methodist, and in fact, that's how he, in, co in college, that's how he met his wife, Nancy, is she was also a good Methodist, but he says he wasn't a believer, he was, just went to, because the family always did. Um, he meets this man. This is um, Jarrett Blau, also called Jerry, and Jerry was from um, Holland, uh, the Netherlands, and he had got his PhD under Aiken at Harvard as well, but he was on a Fulbright scholarship, so he had to go back home. So he had to spend some time back home uh, before he could come back to the States. Um, he, came, he came back to the States and um, started working on the 7030 along with uh, Fred Brooks. Brooks was very impressed with how sharp and creative uh, he was. Uh, he was, he was very ingenious in, in how he saw things and did things, and, and Brooks was very, very impressed with him. And one weekend, um, he, he asked him, what did, what, have you been, what did you guys do this weekend? And Jerry answered, well, we went up to New York, upstate New York and saw a Shaker village. And Fred Brooks said, oh, they were uh, fundamentalists, weren't they? And, and uh, Jerry says, I'm a fundamentalist. Later... Um, uh, Brooks said he wasn't, he was an evangelical, but uh, he, he wouldn't necessarily call him a fundamentalist. But, uh, but, it, but it, it, it jarred Brooks. He, he kind of like, this guy is brilliant. He's really, really smart. He's creative. I, 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 there's a disconnect in his mind on that, which is bias of, that Brooks had at the time. But it started him doing a lot of thinking. And he was invited to a Bible study, and they studied it. And over time, uh, Fred Brooks' wife, Nancy, became a believer. And, but Fred was stuck. He was stuck on this idea, are the, are the uh, miracles true? I mean, all the miracles in the New Testament, are they true? How could they be true? And then after thinking about it, he said, well, actually, if the resurrection is true, the rest of the miracles are merely finger exercises. So, so the real question is, is the resurrection true? And as he pondered it, he, he studied it carefully as he's apt to do. Very smart man, very serious intent to do this. Open, really, really open. And it was basically the intellectual part of it was the changed lives of the apostles who went from cowering in a room, hiding from everybody, to actually going out and, and getting themselves killed over time for, for this. It just, it, it just really 
was the strongest thing. But he still resisted it until one day he woke up and through the gift of the Holy Spirit, he was convinced of the reality of the resurrection. And once you're really convinced of the reality of the resurrection, everything changes. And everything changed from, from Brooks at that point. But his work didn't change. God really blessed him there. By this time, he had finished the work he'd done on the 70-30, and he was back in research and got invited back to the Poughkeepsie to do development because IBM computers were starting to lose in the marketplace. Competitors were catching up. Um, so he went back and, and got with his buddy Jerry Blau again, who had been working on a, like a follow-on to the business machines, and they came up with a really elaborate uh, series of models, and there was a small one and a really expensive one and some software, and they put it all together and they made this plan, and they invited the management from White Plains, New York, this is where the headquarters of IBM's business guys were, up to the research guys at Poughkeepsie, and presented it to him, and everybody loved it. And, he's, and Fred's thinking, this is great. Ah, this is great. He's presenting it to the room full of people, and everybody likes it, except he did notice this one guy in the back, and, and the one guy in the back was T. Vincent Learson. And Vin Learson was the number two guy at IBM, and he reported directly to the IBM president, uh, Tom Watson, Jr. And... Vincent, uh, Vin was aware of a big problem in IBM. The problem was they had six, six different lines of computers. None of them were the same, what we call architecture today. They didn't have that word then. They were, if you programmed one to do payroll, you had to write a completely different pro uh, program on the second one. If you, if you wrote any compiler, because Fortran was big, they had to have six completely different Fortran compilers. They had, COBOL was getting to be a big thing because the military's complaining, hey, I've got all these different inventory systems and they have to run on completely different software. And internally, IBM's got to provide this. Before you bought a computer, it had a book and you're on your own. Uh, now, there are people, customers are expecting to actually have software. So, uh, so uh, you know, Learson was aware that this is just going to add a seventh uh, machine, incompatible, and it's a mess, and we've got to clean it up. So he calls this guy. Uh, this is Bob O. Evans. Everybody called him Bo. Um, and he said, listen, there's these guys in Poughkeepsie. They want to build a system. Go look at it. If it's right, do it. If it's not right, do what is right. So Bo went from Endicott, which is up the river a little bit from uh, in New York, which made the smaller machines, to Poughkeepsie, which was responsible for the larger scientific machines, and looked at it for a couple of weeks and said, nope, this is the wrong thing to do, and we've got to kill it. And that started about a six-month battle uh, between do we build the 8,000 series or do we do something else? And the something else kind of got called the new product line. NPL, new product line. So this is the first of three great battles in this pretty hist bit of history. And, and our hero here is Fred Brooks and Gerald Blau and a guy named uh, 
uh, Gene Amdahl, which I'll talk about a little bit later, they're all kind of wanting to build this machine. I mean, you're, anybody's like that. Once you start seeing a machine and an idea, you kind of want to build it, right? You don't want to just talk about it. And somebody says, no, it's not the right thing. You kind of resist that. But it wasn't a personal attacks. You know, uh, a, t a fight in these days were about ideas, was about the actual content. There had to be reasoning and logic. And you could lose if your idea just wasn't any good by some criteria. Not that it wasn't any good because you didn't like those people and they're bad people and you're good people and all that stuff. It, was, it was, wasn't personal at all, as you'll see in a second, right? So the battle went on for a while and, um, and, and the battle was actually evolved that what Bo wanted to do is implement the new product line and he kind of had an idea what that was. He wanted to take all of those six line, product lines and can't kill them, all of them, and design, six, uh, design one architecture, one set of instructions, and six different models to make the six different price points that people were buying the other equipment for. He knew who the customers were, and he wanted to get them an all-new machine that all run the same code, because if the little guy got to be a big guy, he had to buy a bigger computer, and he wouldn't have to change any of his code. He could run the same code. You could think of, you know, your, your, you, you may have grown up, and there was a computer in the household, and it may have been running a Pentium 3, and now you got a Xeon, but it runs the same software, right? Every computer, every, every Intel computer you've ever used can boot DOS, right, from the 80s. Uh, it's a really irritating thing if you work with those machines like I do, but that's the way it is. Well, this was a totally new concept uh, of having all of them. It also meant that it had to have all new uh, peripherals, it had to write all new compilers, it had to write a completely new operating system, and it was a, it was a real bet-the-company proposition. Um, and the, the battle went on, and, it, and it, we, they took it to management down in White Plains, and at first it went Brooks' way, yeah, we'll just add this because we need relief now. And then uh, Bo didn't give up, and he persisted, and he went and he convinced them, yeah, no, we need to do this. Um, and that, that's what stuck. So uh, the marketing company, the marketing part of the company, I should say, decided that this all-encompassing uh, machine line should be called 360 after the degrees of the compass. So that's why it's called a system 370, 360. When I was uh, getting started, when I was sitting in the chairs like you're sitting now, we had an IBM 370, which doesn't make any sense. What do you go all the way around in 10 more degrees? Uh, so, um, so our hero, uh, Dr. Brooks, thinks, well, that's it for me. I'll go back to research. He wasn't sure whether that meant back to IBM research or he was going to be looking for a job after such a bitter battle. Um, and instead, uh, it, but at the end, he, he went to a meeting at Saratoga Lake. It's an upstate New York place. There's a famous old hotel there. He went to the hotel, and they, they were, basically there's 25 managers figuring out where people are going to go because those guys work for him and those guys work for here, and they were organizing about Thursday in this week, Bo corners Fred and says, hey, would you run the architecture and build the hardware for all this? They had six different machines made in three different countries at different locations, and they all have to run the same code, and can you be responsible for coming up with what that architecture looks like and how all this is going to happen? 
and manage the whole thing. And and I, I guess Fred Brooks to this to this day, the last time with his last breath, felt that you could have knocked him over for a fe- with a feather. It's just like how. What a man that I just, man, I just really was battling him, battling him. And, and again, it wasn't personal. And then he comes to him and says, Fred, you, you did such a good job fighting me. I can't think of anybody better to do this because you really know about it because you've been, you've been saying the bad things about it. You know all the wrong things. And I suspect you really know that it's the right thing to do too. And, and uh, uh, Brooks asked some friends, hey, is he for real? And they said, they told him, he'd never known anybody that, res- that regretted working for Bo Evans. So he took the job. But he's still not too sure. Um, and then when they got done doing the first budgets, so one of the things Bo did is say, we're going to do some warmovers. There's a m- big science, com- scientific computer called a 7090. We're going to make another version called a 7094. And we need some people to do that. Well, the guy in charge of that comes to a budget meeting and says, I need uh, $11 million. Uh, and, and Bo says, well, you got seven. Okay, I'll do it with seven. And, and, uh, and Brooks comes in and says, well, I need nine. And Bo says, are you sure you don't need any more? And he gives him his whole nine questions and asks. That's when Brooks knew that it was for, he was for real. This was, this was a real deal. Um, now, some of you aren't computer science majors, and some of you com- computer science majors might not know this, but I just want to talk a little bit about um, what is an architecture of a computer. When we write software, you write in a high-level language uh, that's either interpreted like Python or PHP or compile like C++ and C, um, the, and eventually it's got to be executed by the computer. And a computer is nothing more. It is nothing more than a fast calculator with an, an automation thing sitting on the side of it. And the automation part on the side pulls in a, a number that says what to do into a, a, a control logic and sequences through operations in the calculator to do what it said. Fetch, it decodes the instruction, and it executes. Fetch, decode, execute, fetch. That's all it is. It's all it was in 1949. It's all it is in 2023, okay? Fetch, decode, and execute. That's what you see from above. And it's called, the, and, and these guys came up with these terminology. It's called uh, the architecture. The architecture is what it looks like from the outside, right? You go to an architect to design your house, you got floor plan and all that, but you want to see the elevation. What does my house look like? Well, that was what the architecture was. The computer's got to be built out of real parts, right? So at the very bottom, there has to be a bunch of transistors and things. And that's called the realization. The guys today call it the gate level because we all use chips. When these guys are doing it, they use an individual can with a transistor on it, or as you'll see here, a little square piece with some transistors uh, soldered to a block, a ceramic block. They were, they were easing into integrated circuits. Integrated circuits weren't quite far enough along to build these machines yet, but they made a thing that they could use them when they were. So that's realization. And in the middle is something called implementation. And that's where, well, I'm going to have this, uh, these 32 bits, and they're going to be a register, and i got 16 registers, and i got an ALU that does these operations, and buses that move things around, and you turn a bus on, and you turn it off, and you think about the design at that level, and, and you don't think about it in the 
realization level. There were two models of machines that had the same implementation, right, uh, but different realization, right, but their implementation was the same. All of them had the same architecture. Okay, so that's the three levels. Today you would call the middle thing register transfer level or RTL. So that, that's, uh, so if you think FPGA, think you write Verilog, and that goes in, that's the implementation, and the software from the vendor does the realization, because he's going to place the, the logic onto the actual FPGA. Okay, uh, uh, end of geekdom there. Uh, well, there's plenty of geekdom going, but uh, that's, that, I, I'm, I'm popping the stack of geekness right now. So they had a great team to come up with this because they're betting a the company on this, right? So they got to come up with a great architecture. So, of course, Brooks is the lead, and he is involved in the architecture. He actually uh, uh, works on it and works on it. And Jerry's there. Gene Amdahl's there. Now, the three godly men are obviously Brooks and Blau and Gene. I saw uh, uh, Brooks comment that Gene was a very godly, devout man. Okay, so, and you'll see he's pretty key in what happens with this architecture. John Cock, I mentioned earlier, he did a lot of very interesting things, a lot of interesting things. He was very brilliant, and he also realized that, hey, I can make a computer go faster if I make it do less. And he came up with the idea of having reduced instruction set. So he's the one who actually invented RISC, which got to be a big deal, and still, you know, ARM is RISC, and it's RISC because of, of uh, John Cock, okay? Um, so they worked on some architectural ideas of something called a stack machine. And a stack machine is where you, your registers form a stack and you push, you push things on the register, like if you want to add, you push two uh, values on the register and then you do an instruction that says add, and it takes the top two, runs them through the alu and pushes the answer back. So you pop two, put the answer, push it back. So it's like a stack, like a stack. And it worked out pretty well for the medium-sized machines and the, and the bigger machines, but it really didn't work for the little machines because the, there weren't enough registers, so you're always getting, you're fetching and, and storing re, uh, into memory, and that was just too slow. It wasn't going to work. So Brooks came up with the idea of having a competition. So he said, everybody, go. You can do groups or individuals. Go and come up with an architecture. And then we'll come and we'll, we'll look at them. And everybody turned in their architecture, um, and they were all okay. And Brooks had one, and he had put the desk in case nobody's, you know. But two of them really stood out. And the two of them were, unsurprisingly, from Blau and Amdahl. They were almost the same. They had, this, they had similar approach to it. So one of the problems is, in computing still, the number of bits that you have is a very precious thing. You got these oceans of RAM out there, DDR sticks with plenty of stuff. But in the place where you're doing work, bits are expensive. They take up a lot of space, and space is money, right? Um, uh, so they were very precious. Well, in inexpensive machines, you had to have, you get by with fewer bits, but you needed an opcode set of instructions that would actually work well that you could implement and then realize a computer that would run reasonably well for the price. But then on the big machine, that same instruction set had to really, really, you know, burn up the, the road. It had to uh, really go fast. So this is a pretty challenging thing. Well, Gene and, and, and Jerry's uh, design 
differed in only really one aspect. And this became a big fight, second big fight of our story. Um, Jeans was a six-bit traditional machine with a 36-bit word, um, and Jerry's was eight bits. I mean, this seems silly to us today, right? But at the time, eight bits was like, that's two more bits. That's a lot. What are you going to do with it? Well, you're going to do lowercase because you're going to do word processing. And when they were doing this, they actually had somebody that was doing word processing uh, on the big mainframes, and it wasn't very easy. But every morning they had the, the, uh, the, the, uh, every, the what they had said, the, the transcript, transcript of what they had done the day before, uh, already there on their, on their table ready to work. And something about that was just really, it just felt odd. It was different, but it felt right to Brooks. Well, what do you know when you have things and they feel healthy, right? But they're odd and they're maybe not the normal thing. And where do you think that comes from, right? I think about that. Well, um, Brooks decides to go the 8-bit route. And Gene doesn't like that. And Gene complains to Bo. Bo looks at it and Bo backs Brooks. Uh, and then Gene just, just goes back to work. So just, just when he lost the fight, no big deal. Okay, we'll do it that way. And the three of them really work, uh, work very hard on this design, which really gives us our modern architecture today. You know, every computer since then has had 8-bit bytes. Every computer has 32-bit words or multiples. Many computers of the day would have 16. Before this, many computers would have like 18. Uh, and now you have 36 bits, although sometimes the processors you use today are 32 bits. A lot of the, your phones are running 32 bits. A lot of them these days also are 64. Um, and, and, and these are the guys that actually, actually uh, did this. So this are the ways, these are the ways they changed the world. The other thing is, um, and I worked on some of these machines that were word addressable. So if you go to address zero, you got the 36 bits or 18 bits. And if you went to word one, you got the next of those. Well, what these guys did is for the first time they said, okay, here's what's going to be. You can go get a word. It's going to be 32. It's going to be four of these bytes. But if you want to go one of those bytes, you can go do that too. So this idea of byte addressability. It, byte addressability was very powerful for, for uh, commercial application. And the word addressment was very powerful for numerical calculation. Floating point had gotten to be dominant by this point. So the floating point uh, used two of those as 64, two words as 64 bits. And that gave all the, all the resolution they need. Um, the other thing they did we have today is have um, 16 registers. Some of the risk processors have 32, but most of them have 16. Your Intel and in 64-bit mode has 16 registers. Your arm that you're carrying in your pocket has 16 general purpose registers. These are also general purpose registers. They weren't like the registers that we had in the older machines where if it was a data register that you put the number in, it was 36-bit, and if you're addressing memory, it was 18 bits. So you had all these, these, these different ones. The result of this, and if you're serious in computer science, at some point when you're off on a holiday or weekend or something, uh, you ought to read this document. You can find it online at uh, 
bitsavers.org, which has scanned almost it's an enormous number. I like to think bitsavers.org is the sermon audio of technical literature. Um, they have tons and tons of these. The 360 Principles of Operation is the document. This is the document that all those six projects used to define what their computer was supposed to do. So it had to be clear. It had to be unambiguous because the customer bought a Model 30 and then got, later got a Model 65. The code had to work. And the only reason it could do that is that the, the implement, implementers of that use this document very closely. And you can still get it and, and read it, and it was really great. And, and, and Dr. Blau is the actual one who wrote this. Uh, this machine was made out of these new uh, modules, like I said. Um, the, each square originally had a little ceramic uh, substrate with two or three or four transistors mounted upside down and traces on it, and they had resistance. And eventually those got turned into more sophisticated silicon as integrated circuits got better and better. Uh, this is what the room would have looked like. That's the, on the left is the face panel of the machine. It's still with LED, I mean uh, uh, lamps, showing you the state of the machine. I once heard a guy in the computer center at UGA, he was a system operator, he wasn't a programmer. I was in there running a wire or something. I'm not supposed to be in there, but I was in there. And, uh, and he walked by with a tour from a local school and he said, yep, this is the mainframe. Those are the lights. Some of them blink, some of them don't. <laughs> I haven't been able to improve on that after all these years. That's, um, you can see disk drive down here. This is, uh, I'm out of camera, but this is the disk drive. There's a, a clear lid on it. These, this is a disk pack, and you actually change the platters from your disk. You didn't, you, did, the, it, you didn't, like today where it's all sealed up. The things in the back are uh, tape because tape was a very affordable way to store data. So you could think of the, I used to say you could think of the tape of the floppy of the day, but you guys don't know what floppies are. Um, and, uh, and, and that was the console that helped run the whole computer. Um, you don't, there's a card reader in the center there with a little uh, thing, and most people interacted with these machines uh, with, a, with a card reader. Um, so they're about to announce this. They've got all the design, all the tests. They're not going to manufacture. It'll be another year before they actually ship all these machines, but they're ready to announce it in April. In January, they have a last minute, and we have our last battle of our, of our, of our talk. The 1401 was a really small mainframe. It was made out of the previous generation parts, and it was run by a guy named John Hanstra. And John Hanstra had been secretly doing another model computer, another version of his. And he came to, went to management and said, you don't need to do all those Model 30s and 40s because I got that covered with my new 1401 successor machine. And it runs six times faster than the current 1401. Uh, well, this is a big problem because this would have basically meant the end of the, of the uh, System 360. Because if you didn't do the whole line, you couldn't get the benefits of price. You couldn't get the benefits of the customer saying, oh, it can go up and down. It would have made a big mess. And management was listening to him. And this was really making everybody pretty uncomfortable. Um, because what they'd done is they had, what you see here is 
one of those transistor logic modules I told you before. Here's a chassis of those looking from the back. This, I've actually seen this machine. It's in the Computer History Museum in uh, Mountain View, California. If you ever get a chance, go out there. Uh, it's, it's great. They run this machine. A bunch of old IBM geezers, that's what they say they are, uh, uh, restored this machine to working order. And they run it for people. You can go in this little machine room, and, and there's a rail on one side, and they run the tapes and everything. Anyway, the Hayad, his successor machine used those same kind of logic modules, the SLT logic modules. So guess who's going to get it? This, they sold 20,000 of these machines. So that would have completely used up all of their integrated circuits, all of the materials they were going to use, and it would really have starved them out. Now, to understand the next step of the story, you've got to take a slight detour. Um, and that's with the idea of microcode. You think of the computer, if you get down to the architecture, you know, I described you, you fetch an instruction, you decode it, and you execute it, right? Well, that actually was the way the original computers work, but the British guy, uh, Dr. Wilkes here, who built the very first operational computer, um, came up with a better idea. He said, why don't we make a smaller, simpler computer and have a fixed program in it that fetches, decode, and executes instructions. So you have the macro instructions that the programmer knows about, and then you have the micro instructions that the computer is using to implement the emulator for the macro instructions. When you, when you use your laptop, you've got these really ugly old Intel instructions they get read in, and a microprogram in that chip actually turns it into micro operations. It, makes, uh, uh, it actually makes a little risk machine out of it and starts push, pumping it through to make it go faster. So we still do that today. This is a, exactly how, how we do it. Well, the guys at IBM in this time decided to use that for their machines too. And th one of the engineers of one of the smaller machines had decided to try to make an emulator, which is what that little program underneath is called, of microcode to be a 1401, like Hanstra's machines were. And he did, and it was pretty good. So at night, what happened is, after one of the meetings, it didn't look like it was going well, looked like they're maybe gonna do Hanstra's thing. He spent an all-nighter, jumped in a plane, flew back to Poughkeepsie, took that emulator that they had, they, they did whatever they had to do to get it running on the Model 30, and they ran through all the benchmarks or all the inner loops that you would have in the model uh, in a 1401. And then, and then the next morning, they were there with numbers. And they showed that if, you took a, if the customer took a Model 30 and ran this emulator, he would have a 4x improvement on his old 1401. Not the 6x, but it was close enough. So they had the meeting for about half a day. They broke for lunch. They, they didn't come back in the afternoon. The next day, they show up. And Hanstra's not there, but his lieutenant's there. And that's when Fred knew, hey, I won that. Whew, right at the end there. They're almost going to mess this stuff uh, at the end. Well, what happened it was that this revolutionized uh, the computer industry completely. A lot of what you see and how it works today is directly because of these three godly men who uh, did all this work. What happened to our hero? Well... He was so good at hardware, they asked him to work on the software. And that's a whole presentation of itself. Uh, but it was an OS 360 disaster. Um, it took way too long to make. It cost too much. 
It, was, it didn't do what it said it would do. It was a big problem. And basically, it was something called a second system effect. You do one thing first time, you're a little nervous, you're scared. You know, it's kind of like driving, right? And then you're just careful and you follow the rules and you be real. After a while, when you do the second design, you think, man, I know all about this. This is easy. And you go out there and you make a big mess because you think you can do everything and you just, ooh. So you got to be humbled. And that even happens when you know you're doing it. So, so at, an, at a lunch, uh, exit lunch, uh, where Tom Watson was trying to convince Brooks not to go for his next step. So Brooks decided uh, at the end of this, before the end of this, he got invited by the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill to uh, create a computer science department and be the first chairman. Uh, and he took the job, but he, there was some, he, he said, you got to wait and you can't tell anybody. And, uh, and they did that and, and they told Watson and Watson tried to talk him out of it. And he said, he, he wouldn't be talked out of it. And, but then said, well, at least do this for me. And they made some deal and, and he did a really good job of doing both, juggled both for a while. Well, at one of the last one of those meetings, he asked a question that people still ask today and it's still something to ponder. Why is software so much harder than hardware? Um, and, and Dr. Brooks said, well, I don't know, but I'll think about it. Uh, remember, he was from Greenville, North Carolina. And the result several years later was the mythical man month that anybody in the business should, should read. There's a 25th edition that you should read because uh, it has some extra chapters in the back. Uh, these guys figured out how to do all this stuff. And people forget, and they make a mess, and they make fashions and fads, and we have all kinds of, of, of uh, funny things. Uh, and it's like we forget. Uh, these people, uh, actually, if we go back and read some of the earlier stuff, there's a sweet spot where they figured it out. And this book is definitely one of the things to read. Gene went on, left IBM uh, for the second time. Actually, he'd left IBM before he came back and did the 360. And he built a set of computers that were plug compatibles. Not only did they run the software, you could also plug them into the same peripherals uh, called Amdahl. And, uh, and, and he, had a, he lived in California and he had a big career out there. It, was, uh, it did quite nice. And then uh, Jerry Blau very quickly went back. Um, uh, oh, the other thing he did that I didn't put on the slide is Blau invented paging. Uh, if you take operating systems and you study uh, how, you, how the memories actually, so you write your program and it's virtual memory. <clears throat> it gets translated into physical memory. Well, the way it does that today on the ARM or the Intel is exactly the same way as Dr. Blau invented uh, for MIT's time sharing system, not for the 360. The 370 had it, but the 360 didn't. He went back to the Netherlands. He's very, he was very involved in, uh, in evangelism there and reaching students there and helping them come to grips with science and, and uh, God, um, uh, and as did Dr. Brooks at University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. So there's my three godly men and how they changed computer history, and we've hit EOF. <laughs> I'll be very happy to entertain any questions uh, you have. So the question is, what are the top three things uh, the difference between a good design and a bad design. Simplicity, clarity, and generality. Uh, if you think of a solution, you, you kind of want to go that way. So when you start uh, any project or any development, 
uh, on anything, hardware, software, you start with not quite knowing what all you have to do. In fact, Dr. Brooks pretty much argues persuasively that you can't really know the requirements. You can know some requirements, but imagine that it's a cave that you haven't explored before, and you're going to enter it. Well, you've got to exactly predict exactly what the cave looks like, even though you've never been in it before. Well, that's kind of what a design is. As you're writing code or developing something, you realize, oh, I didn't think of that. And what is the requirement should be here? So you kind of can't even do the requirements yet. Well, you're going to wind up with a solution, and it's, it's going to be somewhat complicated because it's like your stream of consciousness solution in a way. If you stop and think about it, you'll think of a better way to do it, and then you go back and change things and change some more. If you, the business history of recent has been time to market dominated, which meant as soon as it worked, you shipped it. And you didn't let people go back and redo the work on the design. There were some great exception places where that was an exception. So simplicity comes from that follow-on. So you get growing complexity, and then you get a precipitous fall to simplicity, the other side of complexity, not simplistic on this side. Simplicity is one. That gives you the clarity of being able to look at a design and cognate it. And there'd have to be a, a cognitive psychology to look at why that's true. But it is true, and you can do it and see it. And you know it when you see it. And the last thing is, is the solution really specific to one thing, or is it a generally usable thing? And that's like a, a difference between a hack and, and a good design. And the trouble is hacks accumulate. And they're, they're, they scab on each other. So, other question? You mean how to do the good design? Yeah. I think okay. Right. Another key I would uh, I would mention is iterate. Uh, uh, Brooks liked to say that he originally he thought that you wrote software like you write a paper, and he quickly figured that wasn't right. And then he thought maybe you design software like you design a bridge. And he, and he figured out, finally figured out that wasn't right either. You grow software. It's kind of an organic thing. And that's where you can trim back and regrow as you go. So iteration seems to be a, a really, really big thing. It's a big thing in debugging. So the way you realize that is by iteration. You, do, you get something working to start with and you grow it. You add it. And then you back off and change some stuff and you go... Sometimes you just have to throw things out and do it again. Uh, sometimes you get too far in. Network address, yes. Uh, what ha why did I come up with network address translation? Um, network address translation is why all of you, I can mentally read your mind. Just think, think of at home, you're at home. Okay, imagine your computer, you pull down the networking part. What's your IP address? Think it in your mind. Uh, okay, I see, I see a one. I see one, nine, two, they're all the, you're all the same because on the outside of your router at your house is the real address. On the inside is a, what's called a Martian number. And what's happening in the middle is that's getting translated. And the question is how to, and I invented that. I don't get any money for it, but I invented it. Um, how, why did I invent it? Companies started trying to connect to the network, to the internet, after they had bought a bunch of equipment that had TCP in it, and they just made a bunch of addresses. And now they wanted to connect to the internet, and so there was a real need for a product that would drop in between them and the internet, 
and let them, okay, you don't have to mess with the inside, just get some real addresses, put them in that box, and now you've got a legal, you, 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 know, you, can, you can go out and use it legally. Also, by the way, that's where we can do network where do firewalling, right? Because that's the place you're leaving the box. Because back in the 90s, you know, the, the good news is you're connecting to the world. The bad news is the world's connecting to you. And, and so the PIX was the product we did that with, the private internet executive uh, that we sold to Cisco, and, and, uh, and, and they sold quite a number of those. So that's how I came up with the, the network address. It just seemed to be the right thing to do. Uh, another question? Um, uh, Luther answered that question when he said, you know, the cleric is serving God and the milk woman is serving God. Um, it gets back to our business philosophy. You just find somebody to help and help them. And, uh, uh, and you'll prosper yourself and, and everybody else too. Well, I'm very grateful to, to be allowed to speak to you and I appreciate your time tonight very much. Yeah.